Section 4 of Anton Chekhov and Other Essays. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Anton Chekhov and Other Essays by Lev Chestov. Translated by John Middleton Murray and Samuel Kotarlyansky. Section 4. Anton Chekhov. Oration from the Void, Part 4. 7. The only philosophy which Chekhov took seriously and therefore seriously fought was positivist materialism. Just the positivist materialism, the limited materialism which does not pretend to theoretical completeness with all his soul chekhov felt the awful dependence of a living being upon the invisible but invincible and ostentatiously soulless laws of nature and materialism above all scientific materialism which is reserved and does not hasten in pursuit of the final word and eschews logical completeness wholly reduces to the definition of the external conditions of our existence the experience of every day every hour every minute convinces us that lonely and weak man brought to face with the laws of nature must always adapt himself and give way give way give way the old professor could not regain his youth the overstrained Ivanov could not recover his strength. Laevsky could not wash away the filth with which he was covered. Interminable series of implacable, purely materialistic non possumus against which human genius can set nothing but submission or forgetfulness. Resignatoi mon cure, dors ton simier de brut we shall find no other words before the pictures which are unfolded in chekhov's book the submission is but an outward show under it lies concealed the hard malignant hatred of the unknown enemy sleep and oblivion are only seeming does a man sleep does he forget when he calls his sleep sommier de brute but how can he change the tempestuous protests with which the tedious story is filled the need to pour forth the pent-up indignation soon begin to appear useless and even insulting to human dignity chekhov's last rebellious work is uncle vanya like the old professor and like ivanov uncle vanya raises the alarm and makes an incredible pother about his ruined life he too in a voice not his own fills the stage with cries life is over life is over as though indeed any of these about him any one in the whole world would be responsible for his misfortune but wailing and lamenting is not sufficient for him he covers his own mother with insults aimlessly like a lunatic without need or purpose he begins shooting at his imaginary enemy sonia's pitiable and unhappy father his voice is not enough 
he turns to the revolver he is ready to fire all the cannon on earth to beat every drum to ring every bell to him it seems that the whole of mankind the whole of the universe is sleeping that the neighbors must be awakened he is prepared for any extravagance having no rational way of escape for to confess at once that there is no escape is beyond the capacity of any man then begins a chekhov history Quote, he cannot reconcile himself neither can he refuse so to reconcile himself he can only weep and beat his head against the wall uncle vanya does it openly before men's eyes but how painful to him is the memory of this frank unreserve when every one has departed after a stupid and painful scene uncle vanya realizes that he should have kept silence that it is no use to confess certain things to anyone not even to one's nearest friend a stranger's eye cannot endure the sight of hopelessness your life is over you have yourself to thank for it you are a human being no more all human things are alien to you your neighbors are no more neighbors to you but strangers you have no right either to help others or to expect help from them your destiny is absolute loneliness End quote. little by little chekhov becomes convinced of this truth uncle vanya is the last trial of loud public protest of a vigorous declaration of rights even in this drama uncle vanya is the only one to rage although there are among the characters dr astrov and poor sanya who might also avail themselves of their right to rage and even to fire the cannon but they are silent they even repeat certain comfortable and angelic words concerning the happy future of mankind which is to say that their silence is doubly deep seeing that comfortable words upon the lips of such people are the evidence of their final severance from life they have left the whole world and now they admit no one to their presence they have fenced themselves with comfortable words as with the great wall of china from the curiosity and attention of their neighbors outwardly they resemble all men therefore no man dares to touch their inward life what is the meaning and significance of this straining inward labor in which those lives are over probably chekhov would answer this question as nikolai stepanovich answered katie's with i do not know he would add nothing but this life alone more like to death than life attracted and engaged him therefore his utterance grew softer and slower with every year of all our writers chekhov has the softest voice all the energy of his heroes is turned inwards they create nothing visible 
worse they destroy all things visible by their outward passivity and inertia a positive thinker like von koren brands them with terrible words and more content is he with himself and his justice the more energy he puts into his anathemas scoundrels villains degenerates degraded animals what did von koren not devise to fit the Leyevskis? the manifestly positive thinker wants to force Leyevsky to transcribe documents the surreptitiously positive thinkers idealists and metaphysicians do not use abusive words instead they bury chekhov's nerves alive in their idealistic cemeteries which are called conceptions of the world chekhov himself abstains from the solution of the question with the persistency to which most of the critics probably wished a better fate and he continues his long stories of men and the life of men who have nothing to lose as though the only interest in life were this nightmare suspension between life and death what does it teach us of life or death again we must answer i do not know those words which aroused the greatest aversion in positive thinkers but appears in some mysterious way to be the permanent elements in the ideas of chekhov's people this is the reason why the philosophy of materialism though so hostile is yet so near to them it contains no answer which can compel man to cheerful submission it bruises and destroys them but it does not call itself rational it does not demand gratitude it does not demand anything since it has neither soul nor speech a man may acknowledge it and hate it if he manages to get square with it he is right if he fails vivictus how comfortably sounds the voice of the unconcealed ruthlessness of inanimate impersonal indifferent nature compared to the hypocritical and cloying melodies of idealistic humanistic conceptions of the world then again and this is the chiefest thing of all men can struggle with nature still and in the struggle with nature every weapon is lawful in the struggle with nature man always remains man and therefore right whatever means he tries for his salvation even if he were to refuse to accept the fundamental principle of the world's being the indestructibility of matter and energy the law of inertia and the rest since who will dispute that the most colossal dead force must be subservient to man but a conception of the world is an utterly different affair before uttering a word it puts forward an irreducible demand a man must serve the idea and this demand is considered not merely as something understood but as of extraordinary sublimity 
is it strange then that in the choice between idealism and materialism chekhov inclined to the latter the strong but honest adversary with idealism a man can struggle only by contempt and chekhov's works leave nothing to be desired in this respect but how shall a man struggle with materialism and can it be overcome perhaps chekhov's method may seem strange to my reader nevertheless it is clear that he came to the conclusion that there was only one way to struggle to which the prophets of old turned themselves to beat one's head against the wall without thunder or cannon or alarm in loneliness and silence remote from their fellows and their fellows fellows to gather all the forces of despair for an absurd attempt long since condemned by science have you any right to expect from chekhov an approval of scientific methods science has robbed him of everything he is condemned to create from the void to an activity of which a normal man using normal means is utterly incapable to achieve the impossible one must first leave the road of routine however obstinately we may pursue our scientific quests they will not lead us to the elixir of life science began with casting away the longing for human omnipotence as in principle unattainable her methods are such that success along certain of her paths preclude even seeking along others in other words scientific method is defined by the character of the problems which she puts to herself indeed not one of her problems can be solved by beating one's head against the wall but this method old-fashioned though it is i repeat it was known to the prophets and used by them promised more to chekhov and his nerves than all inductions and deductions which were not invented by science but have existed since the beginning of the world this prompts a man with some mysterious instinct and appears upon the scene whenever the need of it arises science condemns it but that is nothing strange it condemns science eight now perhaps the further development and direction of chekhov's creation will be intelligible and that peculiar and unique blend in him of sober materialism and fanatical stubbornness in seeking new paths always roundabout and hazardous like hamlet he would dig beneath his opponents a mine one yard deeper so that he may at one moment blow engineer and engine into the air his patience and fortitude in this hard underground toil are amazing and to many intolerable everywhere is darkness not a ray not a spark but Chekhov goes forward, slowly, hardly, hardly moving. 
an inexperienced or impatient eye will perhaps observe no movement at all it may be chekhov himself does not know for certain whether he is moving forward or marking time to calculate beforehand is impossible impossible even to hope man has entered that stage of his existence wherein the cheerful and foreseeing mind refuses its service it is impossible for him to present to himself a clear and distinct notion of what is going on everything takes on a tinge of fantastical absurdity one believes and disbelieves everything in the black monk chekhov tells of a new reality and in a tone which suggests that he is himself at a loss to say where the reality ends and the phantasmagoria begins the black monk leads the young scholar into some mysterious remoteness where the best dreams of mankind shall be realized the people about call the monk a hallucination and fight him with medicines drugs better foods and milk colvern himself does not know who is right when he is speaking to the monk it seems to him that the monk is right when he sees before him his weeping wife and the serious anxious faces of the doctors he confesses that he is under the influence of fixed ideas which lead him straight to lunacy finally the black monk is victorious Kovrin has not the power to support the banality which surrounds him he breaks with his wife and her relations who appear like inquisitors in his eyes and goes away somewhere but in our sight he arrives nowhere at the end of the story he dies in order to give the author the right to make an end this is always the case when the author does not know what to do with his hero he kills him sooner or later in all probability this habit will be abandoned in the future probably writers will convince themselves and the public that any kind of artificial completion is absolutely superfluous the matter is exhausted stop the tale short even though it be on a half word chekhov did so sometimes but only sometimes in most cases he preferred to satisfy the traditional demands and to supply his readers with an end this habit is not so unimportant as at first sight it may seem consider even the black monk the death of the hero is as it were an indication that abnormality must in chekhov's opinion necessarily lead through an absurd life to an absurd death but this was hardly chekhov's firm conviction it is clear that he expected something from abnormality and therefore gave no deep attention to men who had left the common track true he came to no firm or definite conclusions for all the tense efforts of his creation he became so firmly convinced that there was no issue from the entangled labyrinth that the labyrinth with its infinite wanderings 
its perpetual hesitations and strains its uncaused griefs and joys uncaused in brief all things which normal men so fear and shun became the very essence of his life of this and this alone must a man tell not of our invention is normal life nor abnormal why then should the first one be considered as the real reality the seagull must be considered one of the most characteristic and therefore one of the most remarkable of chekhov's works therein the artist's true attitude to life received its most complete expression here all the characters are either blind and afraid to move from their seats in case they lose the way home or half mad struggling and tossing about to no end nor purpose Arkadzina, the famous actress clings with her teeth to her seventy thousand roubles her fame and her last lover tregovin the famous writer writes day in day out he writes and writes knowing neither end nor aim people read his works and praise them but he is not his own master like marco the ferryman in the tale he labors on without taking his hand from the oar carrying passengers from one bank to the other the boat the passengers and the river too bore him to death but how can he get rid of them he might give the oars over to the first comer the solution is simple but after it as in the tale he must go to heaven not Tregovin alone, but all the people in Tregovin's books who are no longer young remind one of Marco the Ferryman. It is plain that they dislike their work, but, exactly as though they were hypnotized, they cannot break away from the influence of the alien power. The monotonous, even dismal rhythm of life has lulled their consciousness and will to sleep everywhere chekhov underlines this strange and mysterious trait of human life his people always speak always think always do one and the same thing one builds houses according to a plan made once for all my life another goes on his round of visits from morn to night collecting rubles Yonich a third is always buying up houses three years even the language of his characters is deliberately monotonous they are all monotonous to the point of stupidity and they are all afraid to break the monotony as though it were the source of extraordinary joys read tregovin's monologue Quote, let us talk let us talk of my beautiful life what shall i begin with musing a little there are such things as fixed ideas when a person thinks day and night for instance of the moon always of the moon i too have my moon day and night i am at the mercy of one besetting idea i must write 
I must write, I must. I have hardly finished one story then, for some reason or other, I must write a second, then a third, and after the third, a fourth. I write incessantly post-haste. I cannot do otherwise. Where, then, I ask you, is beauty and serenity? What a monstrous life it is! I am sitting with you now. I am excited. But meanwhile, every second I remember that an unfinished story is waiting for me. I see a cloud like a grand piano. It smells of heliotrope. I say to myself, a sickly smell, a half-morning color. I must not forget to use these words when describing a summer evening. I catch up myself and you on every phrase, on every word, and hurry to lock all these words and phrases into my literary storehouse. Perhaps they will be useful. When I finish work, I run to the theater or go off fishing. At last I shall rest, forget myself. But no. A heavy ball of iron is dragging on my fetters a new subject which draws me to the desk, and I must make haste to write and write again, and so on forever, forever. I have no rest for myself, and I feel that I am eating away my own life. I feel that the honey which I give to others has been made of the pollen of my most precious flowers, that I have plucked the flowers themselves, and trampled them down to the roots. Surely I am mad. Do my neighbors and friends treat me as a sane person? What are you writing? What have you got ready for us? The same thing, the same thing eternally. And it seems to me that the attention, the enthusiasm of my friends is all a fraud. I am being robbed like a sick, man, and sometimes I am afraid that they will creep up to me and seize me and put me away in an asylum. End quote. But why these torments? Throw up the oars and begin a new life? Impossible. While no answer comes down from heaven, Tregovin will not throw up the oars, will not begin a new life. In Chekhov's work, only young, very young and experienced people speak of a new life. They are always dreaming of happiness, regeneration, light, joy. They fly headlong into the flame and are burned like silly butterflies. In The Seagull, Nina, Zaryasnaya, and Trepov, in other works, other heroes, men and women alike, all are seeking for something, yearning for something, but not one of them does that which he desires. Each one lives in isolation. Each is wholly absorbed in his life and is indifferent to the lives of others. And the strange fate of Chekhov's heroes is that they strain to the last limit of their inward powers but there is no visible results at all. 
they are all pitiable. The woman takes snuff, dresses slovenly, wears her hair loose, is uninteresting. The man is irritable, grumbling, takes to drink, bores everyone about him. They act, they speak always out of season. They cannot, I would even say, they do not want to adapt the outer world to themselves. Matter and energy unite according to their own laws. People live according to their own, as though matter and energy had no existence at all. In this, Chekhov's intellectuals do not differ from illiterate peasants and the half-educated Borgios life in the manor is the same as in the valley farm the same as in the village not one believes that by changing his outward conditions he would change his fate as well everywhere reigns an unconscious but deep and ineradicable conviction that our will must be directed towards ends which have nothing in common with the organized life of mankind. Worse still, the organization appears to be the enemy of the will and of man. One must spoil, devour, destroy, ruin. To think out things quietly, to anticipate the future, that is impossible. One must beat one's head, beat one's head eternally against the wall. And to what purpose? Is there any purpose at all? Is it the warrant of a new and inhuman creation? A creation out of the void? I do not know, was the old professor's answer to Katie. I do not know, was Chekhov's answer to the sobs of those tormented unto death with these words and only these can an essay upon chekhov end resigne toi mon cor dors ton somil de brut end of section four